Malachi 1 verses 1 to 11. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is, you who, it is you, priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. Uh, With such offerings from your hands, uh, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. And the second uh, reading comes from uh, sections of Malachi chapter 3. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord as in days gone by, as in former years. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? You have said, it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. And the last reading from the prophet, taken from Malachi 4. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, 
or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And our New Testament reading over the page from Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the river Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Paul. Did you find that thing for the kids? Good news. Um, oh, that's loud. Here we go. Um, Justin Moffat's my name, and I'm the rector of the parish. It's great to be here and to be with you, and I'd love to meet you after the service. I'll be up the back. Um, if at any point during the service, at any part of it, the praying, the singing, the hearing of God's word, if you think, no, this prompts me to pray or to want to pray, then um, come up the front of the church and uh, there'll be two people up the front here to pray with you. Uh, we'd love you to do that. It takes a bit of courage to do that. The person's not there to be, you know, your counsellor or uh, sort everything out. They'll just hear what you want to pray about and then pray for you. And I think that's a beautiful thing to do. I'll be up the back if you'd like to pray with me. That's fine too. I'd, I'd enjoy that. It'd be fun. All right, let's pray. Father, show us what plans and purposes you have for this world and then give us strength by your spirit to wait in peace, to act in love, to yearn with joy, stir up within us new and renewed faith in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So I've been enjoying uh, using Waze recently. Are there any Wazers here? Put your hand up if you're a Wazer. Almost, oh, that's one of these. Thank you. Waze is a navigation software app uh, on my phone. It's like Google Maps or uh, Apple Maps. In fact, I believe Google bought out Waze for about a uh, billion dollars a couple of years ago. What is Waze? Well, it's well, it's a navigation software app, and the idea is that when millions of people download the app onto their phones, and then they turn it on and they drive. Uh, and they allow Waze to access your location, they become a Wazer contributing to the Waze community. Not as you help other, uh, other drivers who are driving in the same direction you are. Because Waze then gathers the data as you drive along and they then tell you where the traffic is. So, for example, they'll say, you know, there's seven minutes of traffic on the Anzac Bridge, you know, as you're going from the west into the city, and they'll suggest another route. They'll suggest that you travel into the city via Parramatta Road and Bridge Street. They'll reroute you telling you where the accident is, uh, they'll tell you what time you'll be at your destination, and it's often remarkably close, and on the way you get to beep other Wazers on your way, beep, beep, all very helpful, or scary, depending on your conspiracy theory index level. 
But let's assume for the sake of this sermon that it's helpful rather than scary. What's interesting to me is that for the first time in history, a traveller gets to know what they could never know before, the view from above, with basically all the information you need to make wise decisions about which direction you travel in, actual information on your device about what is behind you and, more importantly, what is in front of you, and then that changes how you travel. Before ways, if you had one commute, you know, you had to make it from home to school or home to work or something, here's how you'd work it out. You'd spend a few weeks, you know, driving, you'd work out the best way, and then after that, you barely deviate from that path, except, you know, maybe a few options, if you could see the traffic ahead of you. But now, with Waze and Google Maps and other things, you can see the traffic in real time all over Sydney. You can see where you've come from, where you're going, you can see roadblocks along the way, red light cameras, cars parked on the side of the road, cops even. And you can even see roadkill, which is especially valuable if you're crossing America, you know, from one side to the other. If I can put it this way, run with me here on the metaphor, if I can put it this way, I've now got a divine perspective, meaning a view from above, and that changes how I travel. So now that I've got ways, I'm actually moving off my well-worn paths, and I'm discovering back roads and parallel tracks, and, you know, best of all, you can actually tell whether a road toll is worth it now, you know, you pay $7 for three minutes extra time. I can get to my destination, but I get, if I can put it this way, I get led a better way because I have the information that I could never have had without it. What has this got to do with Malachi and the minor prophets? Well, Malachi is like ways. In fact, all the prophets are like ways. Now, there's a million ways in which the analogy breaks down, but it works on this one level. The prophets come to Israel and they say, ancient Israel, and they say, I know where you're headed. I can tell you the promises of God. I know which way you're currently going and I can tell you you're headed towards the car crash. And I know the better way, the way of God, and I know the way you then ought to travel, yielding to the information as it comes from above. So, Israel, stop going your normal way. It's not going to work. I can tell you now, it's not going to work because I have information to bring you and that information comes from above. In other words, prophets, and indeed the whole Bible, stops people from dealing with mere intuition or following a similar path because you live your life mostly by habits that you never challenge. So, Malachi, often known as Malachi, the mafia prophet. Malachi, the final minor prophet, the final in our series. I hope it's been a fun series, not too dark, but rather informative, or maybe even transformative, as we come up against the face of God, realizing, perhaps for the first time, that God has opinions, loves, and things he hates, that God has a will. I know you, you know you have one. You know, what would happen if I prayed? Thy will be done, not my will be done. 
What would happen if you figured out through the narrative of Scripture and through the prophets that His will is better than mine, so it's time to yield. There are some things I've read in the Bible that I don't like. That doesn't make God wrong. It might mean I'm wrong. I love that quote that I introduced to you last week from Dr. Timothy Keller in New York City. He says this, to stay away from Christianity because part of the Bible's teaching is offensive to you assumes that if there is a God, he wouldn't have any views that upset you. In other words, his will would look remarkably like your will. He goes on, if you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you, right? The minor prophets are God working overtime to do precisely that, to contradict you. Praise God. And to show you a better way than the way of your intuition. Not the well-worn path made of habit, but the way that comes with God's comprehensive, comprehensive perspective on life and living. In other words, God knows A to Z. If I have only my perspective and not one from above, then I can only know P to Q. And so I'll keep making the unwise or even wise choices, but without the information required. Or I'll often find myself despairing and suffering, not knowing why. Or, as we learned from Haggai two weeks ago, of becoming self-focused out of fear and comfort in my life and in my relationships. But God knows A to Z, not just P to Q. I know P to Q. I know it very well. He knows A to Z. He knows creation to new creation. Today, Malachi is number 12 in the 12 minor prophets. It's the last book of the Old Testament set between the return from the terrible hell that is the exile to Babylon of ancient Israel. They've already returned, set between their return and the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus 400 years later. This then is the last word Israel will hear from God for 400 years. It'll be 400 years without a word from God. And this is the final word from God. Chapter 4, verse 5, the final words of the Old Testament, chapter 4, verse 5, on page 6 of your orders of service. See, says God, I will send the prophet Elijah, a previous prophet, I'll send him to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord, that the Lord comes. He, that Elijah figure, will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. There'll be peace. The next word, after Malachi, comes in the New Testament, and I went looking for it in preparation for this sermon. What's the first moment when God sends someone? And the answer is, it's an angel, appearing to John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, in Luke 1.16. Here's the next word. Ready? Here's the next word. An angel. Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents 
to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so Malachi's primary message is to wait for the coming of the Lord, a messenger first, then the Lord, in order. So perhaps if you get only one verse from Malachi that sticks with you, make it Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, on the top of page 6. God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me, says God. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty, set beautifully in Handel's Messiah. So the message of, of, of Malachi is to wait and to wait well, which is perfect, by the way, for the Sunday next before Advent. Malachi, then, is, if you read it at ho- home, it's, you know, it's probably one of the more complicated of the prophets, like Haggai and Zechariah, but its message is quite simple. Malachi is this fascinating dialogue between God and his people, reflecting, by the way, a real relationship. Point, counterpoint, question, answer, comment, contradiction. That's what a real relationship's like, with questions and answers flowing both ways between the people and God. The people ask at least two maddening questions. And God answers both these questions. And then God peppers his people with many questions, but at least one profound question that I want to focus in this morning. And it remains unanswered, this question. But it leads us to Christ's appearing and to his death and resurrection. So, if you're writing notes, I didn't get an outline in this week. Two points. One, two questions we ask of God. Two questions we ask of God. And secondly, one question God asks of us. So, firstly, two questions we ask of God. The first question is in 1 verse 2. How have you loved me? Show me how you've loved me. Prove it to me that you love me. 1 verse 1, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. I have. But you ask, how have you loved us? I don't believe you. It's too hard to believe. It's the question every one of us asks deep down in places that we don't talk about with other people. If there is a God, does he love me? Or is he malevolent? And what's the shape of his love? How does he show it? The Bible says over and over again, God is love. Or God has an everlasting love. But we wonder about that. And there are times in our life when it's evoked within us. I visited a nonagenarian this week in hospital. And she's watching her son die. And he's in his 60s. You know, she gave birth to him in the 1950s. They're being treated in the same hospital. They're both in room 10, but one floor apart. We prayed together. We prayed over her son. But she said to me, 
very cool, you know, watching your son die. Now, she's a faithful woman who believes in the love of God, but she's like, it's very cruel. She, of course, is expressing what we all feel living in this fallen world. It's one thing for God to say, I've loved you. I really have. But many of us ask, how? Show it to me. I can't see it. Israel's thinking it's hard to believe. Now, God gives an answer to ancient Israel that's different from the answer he'll give to us in the New Testament. Related, but different. God says to Israel, well, if you want to know if I loved you, well, look at the bully nation next to you, uh, Edom, that comes from Esau's line. Esau and Jacob are twins, coming from the same mother, but they produced a nation thousands of years later called Edom, and they were once a cousin, but now a profound enemy and a profound bully with... um, crimes against humanity and against Israel that are just breathtaking. Um, And God says, well, you want to know I loved you? Well, look at 1 verse 2. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I've hated. Now, the Apostle Paul picks it up and puts a different particular spin on that in terms of God having compassion on whom he'll have compassion, his purpose in election. But right here, basically, God is saying, you want to know I loved you? I protected you from the bully. I turned Esau's hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Now, I know it's strange, but think of it as a parent protecting their child from a bully. God is saying, I'll show my love for you by protecting you from evil, from the abuser, from destruction. My parent wouldn't want to do that. And it's because I chose you. I was there at your birth, God says to Israel, and I'll save you. I love what it says in Deuteronomy when God says to Israel, the Lord did not set his affection on you or choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples or stronger, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you that he loved you. Well, how does God show his love among us? Well, he's rescued us from our enemy. That's not a neighboring nation, but sin itself, which is the ultimate bully which is what Edom represents in the Old Testament, and Babylon. He has rescued us from death, the last enemy, the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians 15, and from Satan, who stands opposed to us, wanting to accuse us and tell us that Christ's blood is not sufficient for your forgiveness. And God did this, showed his love to us in this way, not by crushing a nation, but by crushing his Messiah. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? 1 John 4 verse 10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In the New Testament, it's not Edom that's sacrificed, but God himself through Jesus Christ our Lord. And you'll see this and you'll say, great is God even beyond the borders of Israel. There's the first question. How have you loved us? The second question is, how have we sinned? Show me. Prove to me that I'm that bad. Malachi is this sustained um, in the period of waiting. They're not living well. And he's saying, look, there's a stack of ways in which you're, you're showing that you don't, love me or respect me, and it comes out in things like um, 
the way they do marriage and do violence to their partners or in the way that they give and just sit at the moment's time half-heartedly without any proper regard for God. So the second question is, have we sinned? How have you loved us? First question. Secondly, how have we sinned? Prove to me that I'm as bad as you say that I am. Surely I'm not that bad. 1 verse 6. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? Surely we haven't shown contempt for your name. Show me what I've done that's so horribly wrong, God. I mean, I go to church. A few moments ago, we confessed our sins. But, you know, when we confess our sins, I can't think of any. Nothing serious anyway. Not compared to people I know. Well, God proves or answers the question in 1 verse 6. He says, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, and he is, where's the honor due to me? You're not honoring me. If I am a master, where's the respect due to me? You're not respecting me, says the Lord Almighty. And in fact, it's the priests who show contempt for my name, the leaders in Jerusalem. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? And God says, by giving me your scraps. says God. That's what he says. Chapter 1, verse 8. Bearing in mind the historical context of sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem, which we don't offer now because Christ has been sacrificed once for all. Bearing that in mind, 1, verse 8. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? I mean, you're going to kill that lame animal anyway. You're going to that diseased animal, you, got, you, you dragged your diseased animal and you're like, look, I've got my sacrifice, slaughter the sacrifice and walked away. You've given me your scraps, you see that? It's not that you're doing certain naughty things, although they are, but rather you've not loved me as you ought. You offered God a sacrifice for sin. It was meant to be a token that you knew that you received forgiveness, but you gave him your scraps. And you know what this is like? Try treating your wife that way. Try treating your husband that way. Giving him your scraps, her your scraps. 1 verse 8, try offering them to your governor. Give that a go, says God. See if that works. Would he be pleased with you? He'll pick it right away. Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? 1 verse 9, now plead with God to be gracious to us. Yeah? With such offerings in your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Sin is like being a child, not honoring the parent that loves them. As Paul says in Romans, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. As the Apostle John writes, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. For Herman Melville in Moby Dick, heaven have mercy on us all. Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly need mending. So the message of Malachi is this. You are loved, even if you don't feel like you are, and you're also a sinner, even if you don't acknowledge it. In other words, it's the same message as the whole Bible. What's interesting in Malachi is the question God asks of us. And the timing of that question between the exile and the coming of Jesus Christ. Because God exclaims profoundly in chapter 1, verse 10, 1, verse 10, Oh, that one of you 
from Israel. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar and give me a scratch. I'm not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I'll accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations from where the sun rises to where it sets. In other words, all over earth. Oh, he says, one would come in the future and overturn the tables and the temple. Oh, that one would come and be the offering that God will accept. Oh, that one would come so that God's name will be great from where the sun rises to where it sets. And everywhere, in other words, everywhere. Oh, that one would come suddenly. So my second point is one question that God asks of us, and it's this. Chapter 3, verse 2. Here's the question God asks of you this morning. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. But God is saying here, I will come. I'll follow the Old Testament pattern of two, one to prepare the way and one to provide the way. Chapter 3, verse 1, I will send my messenger to prepare the way before me, says God. And then suddenly... The Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. God's feet will stand in the temple. The messenger of the covenant, whom you desire, will come, says the Lord Almighty. The one you really want, the one you really desire, who will suddenly come to his temple. He promised he'll come and he'll do something in your hearts. Chapter 4, verse 5, see, I'll send the prophet Elijah to you, always two, one to prepare, one to provide the way. I'll send the prophet Elijah again to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, and he'll do something in your hearts, an internal revolution. He'll turn the hearts of their parents to their children and the hearts of of the children to their parents. And when he comes and does this work in the heart, chapter 3, 2 verse 17, chapter 3 verse 17, on that day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. So there's this waiting for the Lord to come suddenly in his temple, do a work in the human heart and then become my treasured possession, those who should not stand when he appears, those who can't endure the day of his coming will be embraced as sons and daughters of the living God. Mark's gospel begins this way, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet and Malachi, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was his message. After me comes the one, more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I'll baptize you with water, sure. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple And here's the question God's asked of you. 
Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Which one of us is not timid? Which one of us could stand? You want to put up your hand? That's you? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. And yet here we stand, singing songs of joy and confidence. And we do so not because we are okay, but because Christ died the death we deserve, we stand forgiven and we endure the day of his coming and indeed delight in it. Blogger Joshua Jones wrote this. He said, sin is a hopeful word. If our world is a mess because this is what the evolutionary powers of the universe created, then there is no way in which things should be any different. But if this world is a mess because of sin, then we acknowledge that there is an ideal other and we open up the possibility of saving intervention. The Bible's like Waze. <laughs> it's a narrative of where the world has come from, creation, and where it's going, the new creation. But there's 400 years without a word between Malachi and Luke's gospel. How do you wait in this in-between time? Well, you can travel your well-worn paths and your habits, your way of doing things. But in the end, God confronts us and says, I know a better way. I know the only way. I know the most excellent way. And it's the way of Jesus Christ. Entrust your life to him. The apostle says, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's pray. Father, we want to fully embrace and enter into the power of that question. Who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? We recognize here this, this morning that we would and should and be blown apart by the fire because of our sin, because of our disrespect of you, our lack of love. And yet you came, you sent Christ who appeared in your temple and provided the one true sacrifice needed for sin. And so we delight in his coming, we delight in him and we wait in power, your power, ask you to do a work in our hearts to show us the way to give us power to walk this way to travel this way we want this father in the power of your spirit